0: This is a show that brings to the forefront newsmakers, entertainers, and those making a difference in our lives and in our world. Each week is a new adventure with topics ranging from the most serious and cutting edge to the most lighthearted and entertaining. This is Taking Care of Business with Richard Solomon. Greetings, everyone. This is Richard Solomon, WCWP 88.1 FM, Brookville, New York, WCWP.org. I have an incredibly special guest today. Uh, Thank you to the uh, public affairs offices at the United States Navy. On the line with me is Captain Patrick K. Amersbach of the United States Navy. He is the commanding officer of the United States Naval Ship Comfort. And uh, among his many military awards include the Defense Meritorious Service Medal, uh, Meritorious Service Medal from the Navy and the Marine Corps, uh, Army Commendation, Navy and Marine Corps Achievement Medal, Army Achievement Medal, various campaign unit and service awards, and, of course, the gratitude of all New Yorkers. Captain, thank you for being with us today.
1: Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it.
0: Uh, could, you, could you tell us a little bit about uh, your ship's mission and capabilities?
1: Sure. So uh, the ship's mission uh, in New York City is to help relieve some of the pressure on the health systems by taking care of, uh, well, both COVID-negative and COVID-positive patients. The ship, uh, as a mission, when it was designed and uh, commissioned in 1987 as a hospital ship, uh, was to support major combat operations by uh, having an afloat medical asset uh, close to the the battlefield to support Navy, Marines, Army, and Airmen uh, as they were injured or sick on the battlefield. So the ship itself, uh, 1,000 beds overall which includes 80 ICU beds, 20 PACU beds, and the rest being intermediate care beds. And when I say intermediate care, they're bunk beds. So, uh, you know, the bunk bed at the bottom part of that would be used for a uh, more seriously uh, sicker or or wounded uh, soldier, sailor, or marine. And the top bunk would be used for those that uh, have lesser conditions. And they would obviously have to get up there uh, for the most part on their own. So the ship also has 12 operating rooms. It has a CT scanner. It has four additional radiology suites, a full complement of uh, pharmacy, laboratory, um, all of the functions, biomed repair, uh, all of the functions you would find in a regular hospital. In addition to being able to berth or to house uh, over a thousand of its crew members on board, uh, including laundry and meal services for those personnel as well.
0: Would it be fair to say that you're the CEO of the world's largest hospital configuration?
1: Uh, I don't know. I don't think that would be fair. I think it would be fair to say that uh, at least right now we are um, uh, the busiest intensive care unit in the Navy and probably the entire Department of Defense, uh, based on our acuity and the number of patients that we're supporting um, uh, from the city of New York that require ventilators. Wow.
0: Where is the, the, the ship's home port? Is it Norfolk, Virginia?
1: It is. It is in Norfolk. Uh, it started out when it was commissioned in 1987. It was home port in, in Baltimore, Maryland for a lot of years. Uh, and um, less than 10 years ago, uh, switched home ports to Virginia.
0: And while you're in home port, what kind of training and preparation exercise do you undertake uh, before you set on a deployment?
1: Sure. So that's a great question, because uh, when the ship is sitting pierside, um, myself and, and uh, less than 100 professional um, Navy medical and support personnel are responsible for uh, the readiness of the ship. Now, the military Sealift command and their professionals are responsible for the hull, the, the uh, engineering aspects, the navigation, um, those things. We are responsible to ensure that the hospital is ready to go. So uh, we will have um, um, quarterly um, uh, meetings, drills, and training with those personnel that are assigned to the platform in the event of an activation. Um, and then we have just-in-time training, of course, for those that when we do have to pull away in a hurry, uh, that they are uh, brought up to speed as quickly as possible, both from a ship's perspective and being aboard a ship, as well as a medical perspective.
0: Now, I know from my participation in various Navy Embark programs, you, you really see when you're behind the scenes, the training, the training, the training, uh, and the incredible professionalism of all crew members. How has the training helped you prepare for the New York mission?
1: Uh, that's a great question. And fortunately, uh, Navy medicine does a wonderful job of ensuring that uh, the medical professionals that come aboard are trained for the most part prior to arrival. So that training is maintained um Uh, through certifications and courses that are required on an annual basis, as well as a direct hands-on care that our providers and our nurses and our support staff are doing day-to-day in our military treatment facilities. That way, when they do come aboard to ship, that they're ready to go from a clinical perspective, and all we have to do is is focus on those shipboard skills and, uh, you know, bringing the team together uh, to to work together because a lot of them are coming from different hospital systems.
0: In your preparation for coming to New York, did you have to have either special equipment or special supplies uh, provided?
1: No, uh, we did not. Now, what we had to do is um, expand some of our uh, pharmacy requirements. Uh, We do have ventilators on board. We do have dialysis machines on board routinely. But uh, because of the complexities of patients that we were getting both from New York and New Jersey... Uh, that uh, some of the, the formularies associated with a, a standard package, uh, if you allow me to say that, were not there. So that had to be changed a little bit. Standard package that I'm talking about would be either major combat operation, humanitarian support, or disaster response. So this is kind of like those, uh, but a little different because of obviously uh, COVID-19.
0: Could you walk us through the process of accepting a patient? How, how does it actually work? How do you know who's going to be coming and once they arrive at the pier, what's the intake process like?
1: Uh, absolutely. So we, we have professionals that work over the Javits Center, um, we call them LNOs or liaison officers, that are in contact, direct contact with hospitals uh, in New York City. So they've gone out to these hospitals, they've developed contact, uh, they, they actually will, will sit down with uh, the healthcare team. And they will determine what patients would best fit in this environment. So we are a hospital, but we are a hospital, but it's kind of a little bit more austere uh, presentation. Our ICUs are all open bay. The wards that I had previously mentioned are large open bay wards. So they're not private rooms. not isolated uh, rooms, uh, for example. So the providers will, will sit down and talk. And so it will be a, a doctor-to-doctor conversation for the most part. To determine what patients would be appropriate for our environment, and then a uh, transportation and the, the discharge process would occur at the, uh, uh, the facility that would be sending us the patient, and they would come over to us by ambulance, and uh, we would uh, we would uh, you know, in process them at the pier, and uh, bring them aboard the ship.
0: Now, are there any special ways to actually do that physically? Because if you have people on stretchers, how do you how do you bring them on, especially you know. The ship is quite large. It's, it's like how many football fields long and how tall is it?
1: Yes, it's, uh, it's uh, over, well, let's say 900 feet, right around 900 feet long. Uh, so it's that's, that's, uh, quite a distance to move somebody uh, through the ship as a whole. Also, there's ramps associated with that. There's a, a, a lot of movement uh, that you would not necessarily have to do in a traditional hospital to get the patient from the pier uh, into the ICU environment, for example. We would transfer the patients. Uh, we have um, at Pier 90 here, we have a, a really nice setup that's, uh, you know, well-lit, air-conditioned, and heated um, that we uh, bring our patients in. We will transfer them from the ambulance unit right onto a, uh, a stretcher in that location, uh, ensuring that uh, uh, what we have as far as a uh, treatment, and the equipment is transferred over appropriately and safely. Uh, any documentation that may uh, need to uh, come with that patient is also turned over, and then our, our uh, transport team will bring them up to the, the ship to the, whatever location that they're going to receive care.
0: In terms of daily routine, if there is a daily routine, it, do you have like a staff briefing in the morning or, or an assessment at the end of the day as to how things are going, what things need to be done? Was that ongoing? Yeah,
1: yeah it's it, it's ongoing. It's it's both actually. So um, at the at my level, we we meet with the uh, the directors uh, on a daily basis to go over um, you know kind of a evaluation of the day's events as well as a an evaluation of the previous day's events, and that is communicated down through the individual departments, so everybody is informed and uh, has it the same uh, information and knowledge about what is going on or, or lessons learned from the previous day.
0: Could you expand a little bit about how everyone communicates? I mean, you have surgeons, you have pharmacists, you have all kinds of different specialists and people providing all kinds of different support to the ship itself. How is all the communication actually accomplished with so many people doing so many things in, in, in a very dynamic environment?
1: Yeah, it's a a great question. And, you know, it's really no different than that of uh, a hospital in the city. So we rely on, uh, you know, face-to-face communications. We rely on uh, uh, telephone as well as email to make sure that everybody's on the same sheet of music. So uh, we do have uh, that ability to communicate uh, across the entire ship, regardless of what the discipline is.
0: Now, in terms of acute care, what kind of acute care can you provide generally, and more specifically in New York?
1: So when we came to New York, uh, our initial goal was to provide uh, hospital-to-hospital transfer care of patients that were non-COVID-19, uh, so they were didn't have the virus. So we didn't bring uh, with us a, uh, a large capacity or capability to take care of acute a patients. Now, uh, some of the other missions... Um, if you were looking at a um, major combat operation, then our casualty receiving area would be full up with uh, both uh, ER physicians and, and ER nurses, and all of those personnel and the equipment necessary to work that environment. Same with any, uh disaster response, we would have a package associated uh, to better fit that, that, that need. But we did not bring that to New York. Uh, we focused more on the medical mission on the the heavy ICU um, um, level type, uh, level patients that we would actually have aboard. Um, So we plus that up and we kind of took away from the emergency medicine response because that was not our our mission at the time.
0: So what what kinds of patient cases are you seeing right now as we speak in New York?
1: Sure, so we are seeing um, basically anything you would see in the city minus trauma. We also don't um, have pediatrics or OB on board, but uh, we have multi-system organ failure patients. We have acute respiratory distress. We have COVID-positive pneumonias, um, the, the same thing that have uh, you know, filled up the ICUs uh, across the city.
0: How would, how would you say the comfort differs from a military hospital, but that's stationary, that's on land?
1: Sure. So, um, not not too much. There's not much of a difference. Uh, again, with the services that we can provide, we don't have an MRI. Um, you know, the ship is metal. Uh, MRIs don't really do well in a metal ship. Um, but we have a blood bank. We have, uh, like I said, the radiology suites. We have pharmacy. We have the full, the, the full spectrum of care that you will find in, in, in a community hospital plus. From an OR perspective, we have a lot of subspecialists on board. From an internal medicine special, uh, from an internal medicine perspective, also a lot of subspecialists on board, so we can provide uh, basically uh, the same level of care that you would get in in most um, non uh, medical center uh, treatment facilities in the DoD.
0: What do you, what would you say are the unique challenges of this deployment as opposed to others that you've been involved in in the
1: past? So. Um, this one differs from the other ones, um, both uh, humanitarian disaster, uh, basically just from the, uh, the COVID-19 and the necessity of uh, using PPE and following CDC guidelines and um, all of that to such a degree um, that we have not had to worry about before. Now, traditionally in, in many um, settings, the ICU and obviously in the OR, uh, like everybody sees, you know, they're they're wrapped up, they're they're wearing all of their PPE and their masks and all of that. But in other care environments, that is not necessarily the standard or a requirement. So here it is, and it is part of our uniform now and part of our daily uh, activities of living. Is you put your mask on, you wash your hands, you socially distance, and you follow those guidelines to the best of our abilities. Uh, so that is really the biggest. Uh, biggest difference between the other missions in this one.
0: Is, is it possible to sterilize areas of the ship, especially given its its big size and ventilation and everything else?
1: Sure it is. Um, you know, um, just like any, any other part of a hospital, we would have that uh, ability and we will have to go through some, uh, even more stringent cleanings, uh, when we are done here, uh, to make sure that, uh, the ship is ready for its next mission as well. But, uh, you think about it, the hospital systems uh, across the state, uh, New Jersey, doesn't matter if a state that uh, have to adhere to very, very strict uh, disinfected protocols. And we'll do the same thing.
0: So when you're at it at sea, how does the resupply mechanism work and how does that work here in New York? Cause I'm sure you need supplies, uh, protective equipment, pharmaceutical, resupply, all that kind of um, activity.
1: Sure. So um, uh, at C- uh, we would uh, rely on um, supplies that would meet us in port if we were pulling into a particular port. Uh, also a replenishment at sea um, which we would actually uh, pull up next to a uh, another military sealift command uh, vessel and they would offload to us uh, usually by helicopter uh, or pull right alongside to uh, refuel. Uh, fortunately we're sitting here at Pier 90 and we have the ability to move trucks and supplies right up to the pier, right aboard the ship. So um, that makes things very easy from a logistics perspective.
0: What has it been like for you to be in New York? Have you had a chance to meet any of the, the different you know, people other than sort of media people like myself? Have you been meeting uh, different other people from the services? Uh, have you been coordinating with uh, medical uh, you know, people? What's, what's your interaction beyond the ship?
1: Uh, yeah, that's a great question. Um, I don't know what anything looks like beyond Pier 90. <laughs> um, there are a lot of conversations and emails that, uh, uh, that go back and forth, both to the job center um, and our other uh, services and uh, support organizations to make sure that we continue uh, to successfully support the people of New York and New Jersey. Uh, but uh, unfortunately, my, my well, or fortunately, my job is here on the ship, and in order to maintain that bubble to the best of our ability and reduce the potential of uh, getting a COVID-19. Uh, my job is, is right here aboard this, uh, a very large and very capable uh, vessel.
0: How, how is all your training? Uh, you have an extensive resume, but how has that prepared you for today?
1: So um, yes, yeah, it's, it's, it's uh, 36 years in the making, I guess you could say um, uh, it, it's all about teamwork and uh, understanding what the mission is and the goals and uh, working to the best of the, your ability within that framework uh, and the people that you have in order to accomplish that. So um, the military uh, pride itself on its ability to work as a team and to collaborate. And that's something that I think that I, I've learned throughout my entire career that it served me very well here today.
0: Well, I, I, at this point, I just definitely want to, before I ask anything else, I definitely want to thank you for your tremendous service and dedication. It, it's 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 what really makes America the country that it is. Um, I, I noticed that in television and movies, we always see depictions of battlefield medicine. What is it actually really like when you're actually in a real dynamic fluid situation with lots of, lots of activity, lots of stress, lots of, lots of everything, communication issues. What is that actually like in the real world?
1: So, um, you know, fortunately we're not in combat here, but, um, a, a, a lot of those lessons and the training associated with what we do on a daily basis uh, makes things move very smoothly. Um, you know, that again, that coordination, and that teamwork teamwork piece are instrumental to ensure that uh, when we receive these patients and, you know, just a couple of weeks ago we had a 10 uh, very critically vented patients come to us from one of the local hospitals that was having some infrastructure issues with its uh, oxygen system. And uh, so we took, 10 patients on that were all vented and very sick very quickly, uh, we were able to do that successfully because of teamwork and communications and, and everybody um, working to their, the best of their abilities to accomplish the mission, um, understanding uh, each and every one of us uh, has a certain role in that, and uh, being able to, to, to work um, in that role as part of the team um, makes it successful and really helps us out in that situation.
0: Is there anything that New Yorkers can do to help you in your, in your efforts? Is there anything that we can do as New Yorkers, as grateful people, to help your mission?
1: No, thank you for that. <laughs> uh, we really appreciate the support uh, that the people of New York um, and New Jersey have provided us. Uh, again, uh, one of the most um, significant moments in, in my entire life, military career for sure, uh, was coming into New York Harbor and seeing the welcome by the the people of new york so uh there's nothing more that they can do as far as i'm concerned we really appreciate the their outpouring of support and uh we'll do the best we can for them while we're here
0: is there any particular web page or place that people can look at social media uh to see what's going on or to to learn more about what the, the the mission of the the usns comfort is
1: um there is, but uh, what I'm going to have to do is uh, get that information to you through our PAO. I'm sure she has a couple of links that can uh, help uh, people that are interested to, to explore a little bit more about what we're doing here. Well,
0: personally, I want to thank you so much, for, for, first of all, for your time. Uh, second, I want to thank the crew for all of their incredible devotion and dedication and heroism. And I truly do look forward to the day when I can maybe come to Pier 90, salute the colors, and ask permission to come aboard. Uh, I I cannot thank you enough for your time and and all that you're doing. And I know that all of New York is so much appreciative of what um, the efforts of all these very dedicated, professional, hardworking people, including yourself, have done for us. So I thank you for that.
1: Thank you very much for that. We really appreciate it. I appreciate your time. Thank you. Hey, this is Jeff Madsen, the Dark Star Orchestra, and you're listening to Richard Solomon on WCWP 88.1 FM.
0: Richard Solomon taking care of business. Our continuing coverage here on WCWP 88.1 FM, WCWP.org, regarding the coronavirus pandemic and providing community resources. On the line with me now is noted attorney Mark Carney. Mark Carney has been practicing law for over three decades. He's with the Lipsis Green Law Firm, which is lglaw.com. They're located in Buffalo, New York. And we're trying to reach out to different parts of the state to talk to different people because everyone is affected by this matter. Okay. So Mark, uh, let's talk a little bit about some of the things that you're receiving feedback from, some of your expertise. So let's start with family court matters. There must be so much stress on people from the shelter in place directives, no matter where they are in the state. And I'm sure that's showing up in legal issues. Can you disc- can you talk about that?
2: Sure I can. You know Richard, what you have to remember is that on March 16th of this year, our courts were shut down with no notice and no warning. So we had family court temporary family court orders that allowed certain access periods to one parent. We had temporary support orders that put in place support uh, payments or you know suspension of court payments. You had temporary placement in abuse and neglect cases. Uh, you had uh, uh, temporary juvenile uh, incarcerations. And uh, all of these things were meant to be returned to the court uh, within a relatively short time. And since we have now no, you know, no access to those courts other than essential matters, these temporary orders are remaining in place. So, for example, if a court uh, under a, a juvenile case uh, remanded a child uh, with the understanding or with the belief that that, that was going to be returned in a week and reviewed, you know, they had all these cases where these children uh, were, were remanded, remanded to a correctional, a juvenile correctional facility. Um, and then they had to start to figure out how to get them out of there. Because uh, as you know, uh, any type of facility has become uh, a problem in terms of uh, covid uh, Transmissions. Yes,
0: and, and the inability for social distancing. Let's let's go back for the people who are joining us, and 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 let's first define what what does a family court actually do, and how does it differ from sort of the other courts that hear the same kinds of cases.
2: So a family court is what we call a court of first impression. That's a court where anyone uh, can go in. With or without an attorney, uh, and file a petition uh, seeking different remedies. Uh, first and foremost is uh, family offenses. Uh, that is where you would seek a order of protection from someone who has uh, an intimate relationship with you, whether it is a, a parent, a sister, a brother, um, a live-in, a spouse, uh, uh, someone that, that you date someone you have a child in common with. Uh, if certain uh, uh, defined as criminal actions are, are done, you can seek an order of protection to keep that person away from you or your children.
0: Now, is that, is Second, that generally like domestic violence?
2: That is domestic violence. Okay. Okay. Um, you know, socially defined as domestic violence, okay. yes. I right. just
0: trying to make it uh, then, easy for everybody out there. Okay, please proceed. Yeah.
2: Then, Richard, you know, you have people that have existing um, custody and access orders whether it's from their divorce or whether it's a an out of wedlock child and they have a custody uh, and access order from the family court they can modify those orders uh, based on filing a petition if there's a change in circumstances and they file these petitions uh, for modifications um, oftentimes, family offense petitions will be joined with a modification petition if there's been some, you know, some violence or some domestic violence or some action which not only places a child in harm's way but would be um, a predicate for filing a change uh, in a match in a uh, custody access or uh, other prior order. So, uh, the third, of course, you then have abuse and neglect cases, and then you have juvenile matters.
0: Now, one of the things that I've always noticed by being a, a participant in just general court proceedings, not, not, I don't really do these kinds of proceedings, but I've noticed that being present, having the court look at you, look at body language, look at the environmental landscape, Who's uncomfortable being next to who? Who needs to maybe try to talk alone to somebody? Uh, that really won't be as effective in the virtual world, will it?
2: No, you know, you're absolutely right. The court has to take uh, account of your, of your demeanor. It has to assess your credibility and uh, judges are, are trained, and they're quite good at assessing credibility uh, based on your, your, your physical language or your body language, based upon how you present yourself to the court. So some of that, certainly going forward, would be lost if we were only uh, left with virtual trials and virtual appearances, um, you always have of course counsel assisting you even in these virtual cases you have counsel assisting in, in presenting your case but you know you, you're correct, Richard. there's no way to for a court to uh, to account the uh, the credibility of a person who does not appear before them.
0: Now also one issue that comes to mind right now is if you're representing yourself and you don't really have, the best technology. Maybe all you have is a flip phone or something like that. Uh, maybe you don't have Wi-Fi. Maybe you don't have a camera on your phone or webcams or this and that. How are people going to represent themselves when they don't actually have the tools to be in these virtual proceedings if they're representing themselves? And they certainly don't have the means to afford an attorney. And maybe they did at one point, but now with all the economic downslide they're going to try to venture off on their own to save money. Well,
2: certainly those people are going to be uh, prohibited um, if they cannot appear telephonically or otherwise. They would be; it would be very difficult for them to make any appearance or any petition. But I believe you know, in 2020, most people have access to at least a cell phone, so they can east at least telephonically present their case, uh, present their facts. Uh, it then becomes difficult for the court. As you can imagine, in many family court cases, uh, it is uh, it is the ultimate he said, she said. Uh, someone comes into court and said, well, he, he said he was going to harm me. Uh, he has the means to harm me. Therefore, I should get an order of protection. And the other party comes in and says, well, I never said that. Now, if it was done orally, uh, verbally, then, then there's no way to prove it. Now, in today's world, we have social media, we have texts, we have emails, Facebook postings. Uh, all of those things can be uh, um, electronically transmitted to the court for review. And oftentimes, uh, judges will take cell phones and, and Facebook postings uh, to try and verify um, one side or the other.
0: Now let's let's switch over to matrimonial court. What is what is matrimonial court? and is that just a part of Supreme Court?
2: Well matrimonials are filed in Supreme Court and a matrimonial of course is a, it, it, it's an action for a divorce. It is one, sou- one spouse seeking a divorce from the other. And in determining that uh, you have a, a number of issues that can be brought up. One of course is custody and access of any of the children of the marriage. Uh, the second is the division of any and all marital assets, the division of all marital debts. Uh, then you have a determination of whether or not spousal maintenance is appropriate and a determination of child support. Uh, and all of that is uh, is jurisdiction for Supreme Court. Family court does not have the jurisdiction uh, to hear divorces. Okay.
0: So, but, but what you can do, if, if I understand what you're saying, you go to Supreme Court and have everything taken care of there. And then if you need later changes, modifications, as you say, then you could go to family court if you want.
2: Correct. Most agreements and most uh, judgments of divorce uh, allow a litigant to either return to Supreme Court uh, for modifications or... Uh, to go to what they call a court of continuing uh, jurisdiction, which would be a family court.
0: Now, I I assume this is an area that you're heavily practiced in.
2: This is uh, right now, this is uh, 90, 95% of my practice.
0: So if people want to get in touch with Mark, uh, go to lglaw.com. His name is Mark Carney, and it's mcarney at lglaw.com if you want to send him an email. He is up in Buffalo. Okay, so what, what are you kind of seeing from the court system right now? I can tell you that down here, um, things are pretty much still shut down, uh, very, very limited access, and the only access to general civil litigation is what the court is deeming essential matters, and their definition of essential matters is much different than the public's definition of essential matters. It has to be. I remember a long time ago, uh, the, the New York City government had a commercial that said, "Don't call nine one one for this." And it was like, I don't know, a cat in the tree. They said only use it for this. It was like King Kong on top of the Empire State Building, uh, and you know. <laughs> and in many ways, that's what they're trying to say, which is we're we're really limiting this to and, and uh, to certain situations. And as right now, the you have to together sort of an affidavit to fill out a form, uh, nycourts.gov, for those who are listening and want to take a look, and you have to certify that what you're trying to get into the court system is what they deem an essential matter. At some point, the courts are going to try to open up down here, and they're going to try to have virtual conferences in existing cases, and I guess at some point in the future, there will be the opening of the courts. Um, right now down here because of our density and mass transit and the schools being closed, everything's closed. So it's hard to see what the way forward is going to be. Is it, is it different up by you in Buffalo? Well,
2: what, what the courts have done here, we'll take family court first. Um, As I said earlier, you know, on March 16th, you had this uh, absolute shutdown, get out of the building uh, don't take any files, and no one knew how long this was going to go. So the judges were ordered out of their out of their buildings, and within a very short time, uh, the court system uh, uh, picked up again, and they began doing um, essential essential virtual matters. Now, essential for family court meant that you had judges rotating in uh, three day segments. They were going to a courtroom they weren't familiar with, um, and they were handling uh, family offenses, which, as you indicated earlier, that's domestic violence or claims of domestic violence or any type of violence between related people. They were handling abuse and neglect cases. Uh, if the county uh, brought an abuse and neglect, uh, they had to one show that it was essential, uh, which was which would mean that there was a an immediate harm to the child, um, and those cases were being heard. And then the third, of course, were juvenile matters, which were not so much new arrests, Richard, as they were. Uh, They had determined that they had all of these juveniles that were in these facilities, and the judges were tasked with the immediate thought of finding the juveniles, finding out where they are, Getting a hold of their attorneys, getting hold of their, of their parents, as well as the county attorney, and trying to figure out a way to get them out of confinement. And, and that consumed, uh, the first few days. So you went from a complete shutdown to a, a virtual court of essential matters. Uh, the court system in the eighth judicial district, and I believe the seventh judicial district, revved up very quickly. And the IT departments got all of their judges uh, um, access to the courts, so that now what you have is you have the family court judges in the Eighth Judicial District, which is you know Erie, Niagara, Chautauqua, Cattaraugus, uh, et cetera, all those counties that in in the Western District. Um, all those judges now have have access to the court systems And are able to have virtual chamber matters heard within their homes. All right. Um, So they are now recontacting uh, litigants, recontacting attorneys on cases. Now that is limited as well. So those virtual chambers that they call them are limited to trials that were pending, motions that were pending, and settlement conferences. for trials that were scheduled. All
0: right, let's, let's, uh, let's take a quick break. Hold that thought. We have to take a quick break right now. We'll be right back. Uh, this is Richard Solomon, WCWP 88.1 FM. My guest, attorney Mark Carter.
1: Hi, this is Anastasia Zoltos from Athens,
0: Greece, and we listen to Richard Solomon on our computers, and we love it. All right, Richard Solomon, 88.1 FM, WCWP, Taking Care of Business, WCWP.org. These these broadcasts are also being podcasted, so check out our WCWP.org podcast. Uh, for this show and a lot of other great shows on our on our station. Okay. We are continuing with a uh, noted attorney Mark Carney from Lipsitz Green, Chimay, Cambria, LLP, up in Buffalo, lglaw.com. Great firm, very diverse, got a lot of practice uh, up in the Western District of New York, Buffalo. And uh I asked Mark because they're sort of moving forward uh very fast up there. And in the prior segment, they were talking about uh, virtual court appearances. What is that experience like, uh, for you and how does that differ? And what are the pros and cons? I mean, obviously one of the pros is it maintains safety, but uh, beyond that, what, what's your experience?
2: Well, as we were talking about the virtual chambers, uh, discussing pending trials, pending motions and having settlement conferences, uh, what that does is it, it keeps it going. When you have a, a pending family court case or a pending matrimonial, if you can imagine, you're under tremendous pressure. There's tremendous emotional pressure, um, especially these pending matrimonials where people are still residing in the same home. And they've now basically taken this action that they brought to separate, and they've been put on hold. and they And we're telling them, you have to Remain in that home uh, until there's a further court order or some agreement. Uh, because if you separate and you don't have at least a temporary parenting agreement, there's nothing to enforce, and we're seeing problems with enforcement of existing orders now. So, you know, we have uh, we have these pending litigation. We stay in touch with our clients. We move the files forward in terms of discovery. And the courts now uh, here, our Supreme Court judges are doing a wonderful job in rescheduling all those pretrials, which got canceled, and keeping all of these actions moving forward towards settlement, or if necessary, toward trial. Well, Richard, as you know, most of these cases, maybe 90% of these cases are, are ultimately resolved by a mutual agreement.
0: Now, what is it like in terms of client interaction where you can't necessarily sit in front of a document, go over it line by line with someone, maybe you're dealing with a child? You know, and I don't mean that in a bad sense. I mean that in the sense of someone who's under 18 years of age and they have to understand the consequences of either agreeing to this or agreeing to that or doing this or doing that. That must be very difficult for you as an attorney uh, to try to really make sure the clarity of what's going on, the, the comprehension of the legal advice is actually being absorbed. It's got to be much tougher than it's ever been.
2: Well, you're correct. And, and when you have these, these conflicting, uh, ongoing, um, acrimonious relationships, I mean, you, you have people. Who, who obviously have an emotional stake in what you're talking about, and they have a financial stake in what you're talking about. And for me, it's very difficult. We can, I can negotiate with opposing counsel and, and with the aid of an attorney for the child in New York State uh, when you have uh, a contested Access and custody matter, Uh, the law says we must appoint an attorney to represent the child's interests and independent counsel. So in these matrimonials, we have attorneys for children, attorneys for the mother, attorneys for the father. The three attorneys can negotiate, especially with the assistance of, of the court, a parenting agreement, which is, in my humble opinion, the most important document any parent will ever sign in their lifetime is the agreement which dictates their custody, uh, their access, and and their relationship going forward and their respective rights going forward uh, to their children. And it's personally difficult for me to do that over the phone with a client. Uh, I can't physically meet with my client to go over each and every paragraph of that agreement because they must understand it fully. I will not have a client execute an agreement that they don't understand every word, every paragraph in that agreement, whether it's boilerplate or specific to their uh, situation. And when I can't sit with a client and look in their eyes and know and be satisfied that they understand each aspect of that agreement, it's difficult for me to make the recommendation for them to sign it.
0: Now, this is something that I don't really know the answer to, but I'm sure people would really want to know this answer. To what extent do children have a say in these outcomes? I I know you said in the prior remark that the child has an advocate, but does the the child's advocate kind of really consult with the child or they just kind of have an independent focus and try to look globally as opposed to more on, a, or they do both?
2: Well, uh, every case is different, but of course, it depends upon the age and maturity of the child. It depends upon the child's ability to understand uh, what's what the situation is. So if, if you have a child, to make it very general, a child between the ages of 8 and 12 will have, some impact, some input, certainly they can tell uh, their attorney uh, that uh, their, their, their father or their mother may treat them right, may not treat them right, may say things about the other parent that they don't like. Um, and, and that child's wishes are going to be a factor. When you have children between the ages of then 12 and 16, that factor due to the maturity of the child becomes a much bigger factor. Um, I mean, certainly you're not going to take, it's difficult for judges to take an adverse position of a 14-year-old if the 14-year-old says, "Uh, look, I want to spend every other weekend with my dad, and that's it. Uh, The judge uh, will take that into consideration in their ultimate ruling. When you have a child that's between the ages of 6, 15, 16, and 18, it becomes even more compelling. So, unless the attorney for the child believes that for some reason the child does not have an independent thought or an ability to create an independent thought, either by some mental health restriction or some alienation by either parent, uh, that attorney is bound to follow the directions of its client. Then, of course, when you have children that are below the age of eight, um, their input obviously has less meaning. We don't let a six-year-old drive the bus, and we won't let them make determinations as what's in their best interests. In those cases, the attorney for the child can substitute judgment, which means that they can use their good judgment in what they believe is in the best interest of the child.
0: Okay. Now, let's let's take this a little further into the, the pandemic. Maybe some people have existing agreements, but maybe they have denser housing or whatever. Um Exactly. You know, or there's better remote learning in home A versus home B. How how is this all going to shake out because it, it appears right now that at least until the end of the Present school year is going to be only remote learning. And there's real question marks about the future. You know, if we're going to have virtual courts for the foreseeable future, um, how is that? And how does that impact with children being homeschooled and parents having to work and maybe having to share laptops? And well, how is this all going to work?
2: Well, let me say this people that have uh, parents that have existing agreements. Um, one of the problems we've seen uh, that I've seen in the past six weeks is I'm getting emails from clients and text messages from clients who are saying, well, uh, you know, dad is a uh, uh, dad is a corrections officer and therefore he's exposed to uh, uh, COVID worse than other people. And I'm not going to send my child there. Contrary to a court ordered access agreement. And my response to them ha- has been that unless you have uh, a pediatrician uh, who has indicated to you that it is in that child's best interest to not go to the other parent's home, uh, you are in violation of a court order. We, we never want one parent to unilaterally make decisions uh, which they believe are in the best interest of their child. They, we, we leave it up to the parent's best judgment. If you have a parent uh, that is by reason of their employment, they're a doctor, they're a nurse, uh, they're a police officer, uh, they are or may be exposed, we have to leave it up to that parent's good judgment. And I have seen a number of my cases pending on my client's where the parents who are exposed have foregone their access and waived their access because they believe they may have been exposed. And I find that to be great parenting. Um, however, I will say that when you, where we have parents that are using COVID as an excuse to withhold access, uh, that will, I, it's my opinion that the judges, at least in this area, have told us we are going to, uh, we're going to have first and foremost makeup time. And secondly, a, that would be a reason or a significant change uh, to open up the door for the possibility of a change in custody and a change in access.
0: Now is so? Is FaceTime and duo and Zoom meetings between the parent who's not in custody for lack of a better expression a, a, a substitute or that because we're under different rules now. So how does that work?
2: I mean, it, look, if you're going to withhold access, whether it's by consent or otherwise. It would be incumbent upon the parent that has the child to make access available to the other parent by any means necessary. So if that's a Zoom or a phone call or a FaceTime or a Skype, uh, I would highly recommend that that parent do everything in their power to keep the other parent as connected as possible during this pandemic.
0: We only have four minutes left in this segment, and I wanted to go into one of the tougher issues, which is we have a lot of people with economic issues. Uh, They can't maybe do support because they've lost their jobs or they're on unemployment. How's all this working?
2: Well, let me say this to you. Um, Anybody who has lost uh, income through no fault of their own has the right to file for a modification of support based upon what they are actually earning at this time. So that if you were laid off through no fault of your own as a result solely of the coronavirus, uh, you would have the right to file for uh, a reduction. Now, the problem we're going to have is New York state law says that you are only entitled to relief as of the date that you file and as you know we can't file support modifications right now so the courts are going to be very hard pressed to grant people relief um, based on current law now what I believe is going to happen is I believe you're going to see some changes temporarily which would allow a a temporary um, modification of support based on the date that you lost the job even though you were not able to file a corresponding petition. Courts are going to have to grant those modifications. How they're going to do that, I'm not sure. Uh, Remember that most of these child support cases are collected through the counties, through the, the, the child support collection agency in that county, and it's all automated. So they're going to have to figure out a way to go back to whatever your date was, you know, March 20th, March 30th, whatever date you received that, and try and recalculate based upon your unemployment earnings. And then, of course, earnings are earnings. So they would have to include... Stimulus checks, they would have to include uh, um, uh, In additional uh, uh, PPP uh, payments through the government. All those things would have to be included because income is income for child support purposes.
0: Well, all right, we're out of time for this segment. Uh, this is Richard Solomon, Mark Carney, an incredible attorney. Uh, the firm that he's with is Lipsitz Green, and their website is lglaw.com. I'm going to send him an email, of course, mcarney at lglaw.com. Hey, spell carney for all those people out there.
2: C-A-R-N-E-Y. There
0: you go.